you have seen fit to speak to us. And we know that when we gather together and your word is proclaimed, it is your voice that is being heard. And God, my prayer this morning is that it would not be me, that it would be you that is clearly speaking to the hearts of men and women and that you would get glory as a result of it. Help us, we ask, by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. Um, hmm. This has been a battle to try to pick up um, where we left off over a month ago, um, back at the end of August. In Hebrews, um, sometimes you, you, you come to a point where you know you're going to stop, and you're like, oh, this is a great stopping point. Well, we didn't do that in August. We didn't do that with Hebrews. The Lord did not see fit to bless us with that. Uh, so, and, and I think it's good in that we're going to do a lot of review this morning. We're going, you're going to get a lot of repetition this morning. You're going to get a lot of repetition this morning. You're going to get a lot of repetition this morning. And again, I say rejoice. So, um, we have to try to cover the context of the book up to this point, and we have to try to latch back into the current thought pattern that we are smack dab in the middle of in our passage today. We stopped at a terrible stopping point, but here we are. Again, God's sovereign. We're, it's providence, right? So we're in the book of Hebrews. Um, this book, this message, is written by an unnamed, unidentified author, to followers of Jesus who have a Jewish background. Uh, we don't know where they're at necessarily. They're all over probably. Um, and the focus of this whole book, this whole message of Hebrews is what? Well, I guess really the better question is who is the message of this whole book? It's Jesus, right? It's the supremacy, the greatness of Jesus. From the get-go, from the very beginning, those first three verses of the book, We've seen Jesus in all of His glory, or at least as much of His glory as we can possibly see through the revealed Word of God. He was said to be how God has spoken in these last days, and He was shown to be the exact representation of the radiance of the glory of God. Now that's, <laughs> that is like crazy high top shelf stuff going on there. And it's, that's the first three verses of, of Hebrews, which, which establishes for us where the whole book is going to go. This is really hot. Can we do something? It seems like it's a little too, little too much. Um, so, uh, he made purification for sins. Then he sat down in the place of highest honor at the right hand of the majesty on high, having inherited a name and status far superior. First, the writer says, far superior to angels. And after some specific proofs of Jesus being not an angel, but far greater than any angel, the writer called on us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard about Jesus. Why? Lest we drift away from it. If the message brought by angels proved to be reliable, so that all those who neglected it received a just retribution, then how much greater will the consequences be for us if we neglect so great a salvation? We then saw that man plays a very specific and exalted place in the plan of God with all things being placed in subjection under his feet, though we don't see that currently. And to show how special man is in God's plan, Jesus was shown to take on flesh and suffer and learn obedience through that suffering, 
just like a human being has to. For it was fitting, the writer says, that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And Jesus, being made like us, is not ashamed to call us brothers. I just love that statement. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Having made propitiation for the sins of His people. And then we finish chapter 2 with verse 18. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. And then we moved into chapter 3. And we were called to chapter 3, verse 1. Now, again, you're going to hear this a couple times. Whoa. We're going to hear this a couple times as we go through today. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. So there, Jesus, from there, Jesus was then described as being worth more glory than Moses as much more glory as the builder of the house is to be more revered than the house itself, as much more as the owner of the house than a servant in that house. And just before we got into that last passage, we looked back in August um, to verses 7 to 13, and we saw this before we get to 7 to 13. We saw this in 3.6. Again, we're setting the table here. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You're going to hear that a few times this morning too. Okay, And then that last message that we got before we went on uh, sabbatical was in 7 to 13, which um, Will read part of this morning. He read all of this and more. And this was our last message. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Now in that message, we actually covered 7 to 11, and we added 13 onto that. And I said we'll cover 13 again when we pick back up. And we will, but that's where we finished. So the thrust of that message was really looking at the reference from Psalm 95 that was being quoted in verses 7 to 11 that we just read. And we also looked at Paul's description of that time and how it relates to us when we looked at 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 12. So we spent a lot of time in Hebrews, that Psalm, uh, Psalm 95, and in 1 Corinthians 10 all talking about the same thing. And what was going on was God was saying that He was provoked against the generation of Hebrews who left Egypt back in the Exodus because their hearts were hard and they put God to the test. Y'all remember that? Y'all that were here, y'all remember going through that? Like, like, no, that's forever ago. You're right, it has been forever ago. Okay? So they provoked God, they put God to the test. So God passed judgment on them, these Hebrews, these people of God, and God swore that they would not enter into His rest. And Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 
that what happened with and to them was written down as an example to us. And don't miss that. What the Israelites went through, how they reacted, and how it all shook out serve as a warning for us. Just like the Passover set the table for our table, the Exodus set the table for what it looks like for us to walk through this world until we see the promised land. It was written down as an example for us, a warning for us. We, as followers of Jesus, are to avoid their mistakes and we are to consider Jesus and be content in and with Him as we make our way to the promised land, that place of eternal rest and joy where we will forever worship Him. And that's where we'll pick up today, keeping all of that smack dab in the front of your minds. Now listen... You're going to have to think this morning. You're going to have to engage. You're, you can't... I don't know if I can communicate what I need to communicate today, but I definitely can if you're not engaged and you're not thinking about everything I just said. Okay? It's, this, is, this is work this morning for all of us. So, we pick up today in verse 12. Take care, brothers lest there be in any, of, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Now that's pretty serious, right? And we find here another indicator that we are in one of those warning passages, which we talked about in the introductory message these warning passages that are sprinkled all through the book of Hebrews. And what's the warning here? What are the instructions as well as a result of the warning or the warnings? Well, verse 12 starts with the words, take care. That's one Greek word, blepo, and it means to be vigilant, to be on the lookout, or to be careful regarding something. And what are we to be vigilantly careful to look out for here? Well, the writer instructs his brothers, those who share God as their father with him, he calls them to take care lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Well, that's certainly a warning, right? In showing that the Israelites leaving Egypt and wandering in the desert for 40 years were more unbelievers than believers, the writer is calling on his readers to not take their coming to church meetings or having prayed a prayer or having had a religious experience as a seal of assurance for their salvation. There were many... I don't know the number, but I would guess it was probably hundreds of thousands who left Egypt. And although they had Abraham's DNA and Abraham's blood in them, they were not God's children. Actually, God says He swore in His wrath against them that they would not enter His rest in the promised land. But were these not God's people? Yes. Were they all believers? No. Which makes us go, oh shoot, then where am I in this equation? And this is where we get off in the weeds, right? 
So, you Hebrews, you who have entered on this spiritual journey of the Christian faith, know that there will always be those who claim identities as God's people who are not God's people. And what determines whether someone is a child of God or not? Well, you can't just judge by external indicators. Why? Because the proof is in the heart. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart. Now, I just want to read verses 12 to 19 all together here. And get this whole thought as we try to set our course through it. These eight verses, along with eight six, uh, verse six of chapter three, which we'll reach back to, and verse one, which we'll reach back to, give us a very clear picture of the dangers of what we are to watch out for and what to avoid. So, bear with me again, twelve to nineteen. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he, God, swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Oh my goodness, please get that fixed in your heart and head. In this passage, the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us to watch out in ourselves for an evil, unbelieving heart. He tells us to hold our original confidence firm to the end. He tells us to not harden our hearts. And he tells us that, the, that those who provoked God in the Exodus were disobedient and were unable to enter the Promised Land because of their unbelief. So, there is a call to endure, a call to obey, and a call to watch your heart. But here's my question. Does hearing that, does reading that, does thinking about that make you afraid? Does it worry you? Does it make you ask anxious questions like, what if I lose my salvation? Or, what if I never was saved? What if I've got an evil, unbelieving heart in me? And what I think we have to do in this part of Hebrews is establish what the writer is saying and what the writer is trying to do. And we've already covered this some, but it's going to keep coming up all through this book. And I love what John Piper says about this very thing in this very passage. Piper says, quote, Everything in chapter 3, and I would argue that everything in this book, is written, listen, to encourage and empower you to be earnest and vigilant and focused in the fight to maintain strong assurance in Christ. 
Over and over again, Piper says, the writer urges us to persevere in our hope and not to throw away our confidence because this is the living evidence that we truly have become partakers of Christ. End of quote. You may want to go back and listen to that again. I have said since the introduction that these warning passages are not there to scare you but they're there to push you further up and further in to see that Jesus is sufficient and Jesus is better. Are you anxious? Look to Jesus. Are you wondering if you're really saved or not? Look to Jesus. Are you wondering if you're like those who fell in the wilderness? Look to Jesus. It is this looking away from ourselves, away from outward indicators, and then turning to Jesus that shows what? It shows faith in Him, contentment with Him, hope in Him, His plan, His way. These wilderness wanderers who kept pointing to their hardships, their rights, their preferences, their desires, just showed over and over and over and over and over and over again that their faith was in themselves or in their circumstances, not in the God who was directing all that they were going through. They are said to have literally provoked God. Verses 7 to 11 again. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. So since they saw my works for 40 years, therefore, God says, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." And so again, the question is, what is the writer of Hebrews trying to accomplish in bringing this up? So then verse 12 again, and this time I'm going to read verse 12 with verse 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So what's the writer doing? The writer is calling on his readers to check themselves before they wreck themselves. No. <laughs> to check themselves to see if there are habits or patterns in their lives that look like what they see in the Israelites coming out of Egypt that provoked God to anger. Because those people were displaying characteristics that showed that their hearts were evil and unbelieving. And that's what provoked God. Do you see, the writer is asking, anything in your life that smacks of these types of things? We talked about grumbling last week in James. Are you a grumbler? Do you grumble about these people? Do you grumble about your lot in life? Do you grumble about your job? Do you grumble about the state of things? Do you grumble about your bad hair day? I do not, by the way. Grumbling is a sign that something's wrong in your heart. And, and, and are there these things in my life that are showing that I'm not content? Are there things that show that I'm shaking my fist at God, provoking God, saying, 
I don't like that you're doing this. I don't even know if you're there because what happens is this slippery slope gets put on and at first I'm a little bit discontent and then I'm just grumbling against God and then I'm, what? Who knows? Do you see anything in your life that looks like these grumblers? If so, it's your heart. It's what you believe that is in question. And he's telling his readers that they, listen, as his brothers, as those who share in a heavenly calling, which we saw in chapter 3, verse 1, listen, he is reminding them that they have believed. They have been walking the path as those who have God as their Father. And don't miss that. Because as such, they are not like those who provoked God in the wilderness. They are not like those that grumbled and complained. They are not like those who fell away from the living God. So instead of grumbling, instead of complaining and falling away, what are they to do? They're to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, as long as now is now and it's always now, They are to exhort one another that none of them may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. It's the very opposite of grumbling against each other and provoking God. It's exhorting and encouraging one another to serve and bless and worship God. We point each other to the goodness of God, the sufficiency of Christ, and we walk this road together looking forward to the rest, the peace, the joy that's going to come when we reach the end of this road and enter into the true promised land. And how often are we to do this exhorting? Every single day. Why? Because every single day we are threatened to be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You're not going to wake up one day and say, no threats to sin today. Ever. Why? Because sin exists in your flesh, even as a believer. Paul said, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So as long as I'm in this flesh, I'm going to wrestle with sin. So every single day I need exhorted. I need to encourage. And how does God do that primarily? Through His Word, through His people. So we need each other. Instead of dividing up into camps and grumbling in our tents about the other camps and the other tents and what God's doing, we exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. And we do this every single day. Each of us, each day, everyone, every day. And if we are obedient to this call in the power of the Spirit... We keep each other from being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And don't miss that phrase. Our encouraging and exhorting one another helps keep us from being hardened. What does hardened mean? It means to become stubborn, obstinate, like an old mule that refuses to move when prompted. And I can't, when I hear hardened, I can't help but think about the heart, which is where all this is going on, right? A hard-hearted person doesn't care. I don't care. A hard-hearted person is bitter. A hard-hearted person grumbles. A hard-hearted person is unteachable and is incapable of loving like they are called to by the law of the living God. And what causes this hardness, according to the writer? That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Oh, do not miss that either. Sin makes us hard-hearted. 
Sin deceives us into being hardened. Sin deceives us into being stubborn and unloving. And again, don't miss it. Commentator Donald Guthrie. I about said the tater joke again. I said last week. So. Donald Guthrie gives insight in his commentary into this by saying this, quote, A hardened attitude is not a sudden aberration, but a habitual state of mind. Sin uses the cloak of deceit with devastating effect on those inclined to fall under its spell. It was the deceitfulness of riches which choked the seed in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. An important aspect of the warning, Guthrie says, against the deceitfulness of sin is that it is addressed to the individual that none of you may be hardened. It is certainly easier, he says, for individuals to be misled in isolation from other Christians than when sharing in fellowship with others. The wolf loves the one that has went off on its own, that's not in the safety with the 99 in the pen. I don't need church. Man, you're being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Who's going to exhort you every day? Who's going to encourage you? Who's going to correct you? Nobody's going to correct me. Exactly. And the wolf is smacking his lips. And can't wait for you to wander off on your own. We need each other. And if your heart is hard, especially against the people sitting in this room, watch out, brothers. Watch out. Be careful. With the thought that hardening isn't something that happens all of a sudden, it's right that the writer of Hebrews tells his readers to take care and to exhort one another every day because we need that continual drip in our lives to help keep us on track. Anybody familiar with Ron Block? Great musician. Bluegrass picker, plays banjo, guitar, probably could play anything, actually. Um, Amanda got me for my birthday last year uh, a, a video instructional deal that he does for guitar players. And something that he said that really impressed me was, he said, every day when I practice my guitar, which first he said every day, okay, the first thing he does, what do you think he does? Now, don't, don't be spiritual and say he prays. That's, no, this is about guitar, okay? Well, he didn't say that. He, it's not about tuning, but he says he sits down and the first uh, practice that he does is he sets a metronome and he works through his scales with the metronome. Keeps him in time. Keeps him on the path keeps him steady. And this man who's been playing for I don't know how long and who's one of the finest musicians I've ever heard in my life sits down with a metronome every day. Why? To keep him in time. And that's what we need. We need the constant click, the, con the constant exhortation from each other. That constant drip in our lives to help keep us on track. And if we get away from that, we're in danger. And we could spend a lot more time here, but we got to at least get through verse 14, which is the last verse that we'll actually cover today. 
I was going to try to do 12 to 19 today. Ha, ha, ha. That's funny. Because, verse 14, great day. Four, we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Oh, there's that if word again, right? If you can remember... We saw in the previous Hebrews passage too that word if, and that if sets the tone for this if and the rest of the ifs in the book, actually. There's a lot of ifs. But the first word of the verse is four, so let's not go to if yet. I think it's important to read that four in the context of what we just read. So with no fear of being repetitive, I'm going to read verses 12 to 14 together. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. <laughs> I think it's... Um, right to look at both of the previous verses in order to get the force of this four. There's a call to take care and to exhort one another every day for. Take care to not let your heart be like those who fall away and exhort one another every day all the time for because we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Well, again, this is one of those verses that if yanked out of its context can cause fear and trepidation if we miss what's going on here. We can read this and be afraid, right? It can make you squirm a little bit and go... It can feel like a threat of the possibility of not holding our confidence firm to the end. And that's not the writer's goal. That's not what he's trying to do. It harkens back to verse 6. And again, yes, we're going to look at it again. Verse 6, Hebrews 3, 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. You see the parallels there? If we hold fast our original confidence firm to the end, is what we saw in verse 14. So there's a lot of similarities here, okay? <sighs> but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. I'm going to quote John Piper again because I love what he says about verse 6 specifically. Hebrews 3.6 teaches that if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end, we show that we are God's house. This is what defines the household of God, Piper says. God's people hope in God. God's people are confident in God. They hold fast to God as their boast. That's the human trait and evidence of belonging to God's household. If you want to be assured that you are of God's household, test to see if you hope in God and have confidence in God and look to God for the security and happiness of your future and the satisfaction of your heart. End of quote. Now with that in mind, look back at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
And keeping in mind that holding fast our confidence is the sign that we are God's house, like verse 6 says, we've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And note the tenses here. We have come to share. When did that happen? That's in the past, right? We hold fast in the present. And we will to the end, which is the future. I guess to you that's the past and that's the future. Okay, I'm pointing to past, present, future. I'm doing it up here. Okay, and, and again, those tenses are so important. Piper again reminds us that to not hold fast our confidence to the end means we have not come to share in Christ. It's not that we come to share in Christ then didn't hold fast so we didn't make it to the end. We didn't make it to the end because we had not come to share in Christ. You with me? So again, I'm going to read 3.1, 3.6, and 3.14 again. You're like, you wasn't kidding about this repetition thing. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Verse 6, But Christ is, a, is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope, in verse 14, for we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Those in Christ are holy brothers. They share in a heavenly calling. They are the house of Christ. We have come to share in Christ. All of those are facts. And the proof that they are facts are rooted in God and in His doing, and the outworking of it all, which leads to our holding fast, our confession, and holding our original confidence until the end, is as much His doing as our calling and election were. He will hold me fast. Let me just say this. I hadn't seen the set list for this morning. And this morning, I was going to text Andrew and say, Hey, will you throw He will hold me fast in there? It was already in there. Providence. And we have to understand and read the book of Hebrews, not just Hebrews, but all the Bible, with the fact that this is God's doing. We have to know the truths that make the frame God is doing what God is doing. God has done what God has done. And God is going to do what God is going to do and we've got to look at the picture through that frame, within that frame. Again, there will be other passages in Hebrews that taken in singularity, taken out of context of the book, and taken out of the context of the whole Bible, can serve to upset the faith of some. But the whole point of the whole book of Hebrews is to show the sufficiency of Christ, who made a sacrifice once for all the sins of all of His people. And that is tremendously good news that helps us to persevere and hold up under trials and persecution and even our doubts and our fears. And we have to, we have to, have to, have to read these if statements with that in mind. Now, with that all in mind, Let's one more time read verses 12 to 14 and look at this biblical context again. Take care, brothers, 
lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It's not a bit scary when we see that what God has done in the past calls us to action today and assures us that it will all be culminated in the end by the very power of God Himself. God who predestines, calls, justifies, and glorifies like Romans 8.30 tells us. And those whom He predestined, He also called those are two past tense verbs. And those whom He called, He also justified. Wait, that's past tense. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That's also past tense. Now, I haven't experienced it yet. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. We said that last week. The third statement is just as true as the second. My glorification is as sure as my predestination. From the beginning to the end. From before the beginning to past the end. God's already done it. There can't be any better news in the world. That's why the gospel's beautiful. That's why we rejoice with trembling. And we hate our sin. Yes, but we're not afraid that that sin's going to carry us away from God because I didn't get myself in here and I can't get myself out of here. That's, I'm jumping ahead though. It's wonderful and beautiful and powerful when we see these ifs in light of the fact that Jesus says in John 6, 37-40, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And Jesus didn't stop there. John 10, 27-30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If. No, there's no if there. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are You could not be any more secure, Christian, than you are. Why? Because of your obedience or disobedience? No, because it's God who wills. Rest. Rest. Cease striving and know that He is God. Oh, I hope you're not afraid today. If you're afraid, i got good news for you. You don't got to be. And we could go on, but we need to wrap this up. That's all the passages we're going to look at as far as exposition, but we do have to apply what we've learned, right? And we're going to be looking at application through three E's and risk of being sinful. I'm awful proud of these, especially one of them. Three E's. 
Engage. Not so proud of that one. Exhort. That one's in the text. That's easy. The third one is ectomy. I'm real proud of that one. That's spelled dash, E-C-T-O-M-Y. Ectomy. We'll get there in a minute. First application point, what do we do as a result of these things? Okay, that's what application's about. The Bible is a great book. It's wonderful, beautiful, but we've got to do something with it. So the first application point is engage. And I'm referring to the part of the passage where he says to take care. Okay? Pay attention. Be vigilant. And what's he saying? He's saying take care, watch out, be vigilant, so that if you see these things happening in your life that look like those hard-hearted people, do something about it. Listen, you are called to obedience. And praise God, He gives us His Holy Spirit to help do the things that He's called us to do, to empower us to do these things, but you got to do them. Now, hear me say this too, those things don't save you. Those things are the fruit. And God's doing is the root. So I'm not saying do these things so that you'll stay saved. Please don't ever, if I ever say anything like that, throw a rock at me. Carry rocks in here. Hopefully you'll never have to use them. What I'm not saying is engage to make sure you get saved. What I'm saying is, since you are saved, engage and do the things that you've been called to do. Alistair Begg gave the progression of what this looks like if you don't engage, if you don't take care, if you don't pay attention. He says it starts with the deaf ear. It leads to the hard heart, which leads to the wandering life. Be careful. Take care. Listen. Listen to what the Word says. Don't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and say, ah, it doesn't matter. I don't care. I don't need to be with those people. Because that's a slippery slope and you end up in the wandering life and guess what? You're out there on your own. So the application is engage. Take care. Pay attention. Be vigilant. We saw this back in 2 Peter And again, taken in the context of everything we've seen today, this is even more glorious. For this very reason, Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing because you're engaging, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. Engage to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, not a threatening passage at all. A very encouraging passage. To do what? To engage. Philippians 2, 12-13, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You're like, aha, see, I knew I was supposed to be afraid. For it is God who works in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And I love the 360. You work hard. You work out. For it's God who's working in you. Do it with fear and trembling, for it's God who works in you. This is no small thing. This is a glorious thing. And it should make a... Have you ever been carrying something that was breakable or a cup that's really full? You're a little bit afraid of spilling it or breaking it, so what do you do? You take care. Listen to me, church. Listen to me, Christian. It is God who is at work in you. That's an awesome thing. Back in the 18th, 19th centuries, they would have said that's an awful thing. And it's awful in a really, really, really good way. So take care. Engage. Be vigilant because it's God. And it's God who is working in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So engage that. I don't know if there's something that you... And if I had this tool, I could really do this job. Or if I had this car, I could... I don't know. If I had this, I could blank. Listen, you've got God. And with God, nothing's impossible. You're like, oh great, I can play the trumpet then? That's not what I'm talking about. You can do this. You can engage. You can bear fruit. Why? Because it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So engage Him. Not a to-do list, not do's and don'ts, cans and can'ts. Engage Him. Engage. So engage, now exhort. Again, that, this is just pulled straight from the context of the passage. Listen, it is your job to exhort one another. It's my job to exhort you. It's your job to exhort me. Each one of us. Each other. Every day. What's that look like? Man, I tell you what. And if this results in me being deluged with texts tomorrow, praise God. How encouraging would it be just to send a text to somebody? I'm praying for you today that you would know that it's God who works in you. Huh. That's encouraging. If you see me stepping out of line, you come and say, hey, brother, that's not all right. That's exhorting. I need that too. You need that too. Listen, we should be able to speak into each other's lives consistently. If you say something that hurts my feelings, I should come to you and say, that hurt my feelings. I don't think that's the way you should have handled that situation. Let me exhort you in love. Think about doing it this way next time. That's biblical Christianity. Ain't none of y'all perfect. Ain't none of me perfect. So we need to exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, so that we're doing the things we need to do, so that we're correcting the things that need corrected, which means we need each other. Exhort each other. We'll see later in Hebrews. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's all the more important as we see wars and rumors of wars and hear of famines and earthquakes. Why? Because we want to be found faithful when He appears. And in order to do that, we need each other.
So exhort one another. All right. Engage, exhort, ectomy. I just cried a little when I said that. It's so beautiful. Ectomy. Some of y'all are Ghostbusters people, and you're like, are you talking about ecto? No, no, no. Listen, from Wikipedia, the surgical terminology suffix dash, E-C-T-O-M-Y, ectomy, was taken from the Greek word which means act of cutting out. It means surgical removal of something, usually from inside the body. An appendectomy means they're cutting out your appendix. A lobectomy, they're cutting out a lobe of something. God have mercy on us. There is a duodenectomy, which means they're cutting out your duodenum. I don't know what your duodenum does, but I would think that's not a good thing. There's a pancreatectomy. They're cutting out your pancreas. There's also a pancreatic duodenectomy, which means they're cutting out your pancreas and your duodenum, by the way. But the point is this, okay? Forget all that. Listen, this is the most profound thing I'll say all day. I'm saying that because it's silly, but it's true. Jesus never needs an ectomy. Somebody tweet that right now. (laughs) Why do I say that? Hold fast your confidence. We are the house that God is building. We are the body of Christ. And God does not add a stone to the house, then remove it. He doesn't change His mind. He doesn't add a part of the body, then say, we're going to have to get that out of there. Every single person who is fitted into the dwelling place of the Spirit, who is fitted into the body of Christ, every single person, every single one of them has been foreknown from before the foundation of the world by God Himself. They have been beloved. They have been chosen and shown grace due to God's doing only. And He cannot fail. From predestination... To glorification, like we saw in Romans 8, God has done, God is doing, and God will do what only He can do. So are you afraid you've made Him too mad? Are you afraid you've wandered too far? Are you scared that He may know everything about you? Well, guess what? He does. And from eternity past, He set His love on you. Why? I don't know why He fools with any of us, Don says. But He did. Because of the great love with which He has loved us. Do you know, Christian, that it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom? Jesus said, Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not, little flock. There's no fear in love, the Apostle John says, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love, and we love because He first loved us. There is therefore now no condemnation. There is no fear of punishment in the kingdom of God. 
I need to do a lap, y'all. No fear of punishment in the kingdom of God. Is there conviction of sin? Absolutely. And that ain't fun. Donk. I don't know what that was. Donk. Conviction. Donk. <laughs> I didn't do that. There's no fear in love. How about this one? I'm sure of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion or perfection, as some versions say, at the day of Jesus Christ. How about this one? Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. <laughs> if you're a good boy or a good girl, you'll make it. He will surely do it. He will hold me fast. Our assurance comes when we turn to Him. Our assurance comes when we put our faith in Him. Our turning to Him is what gives us confidence. And if you have that confidence in Jesus, know that God gave you that gift. And He'll never take it back. And He will hold you fast. For my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. No ectomies in the kingdom of God. So engage, exhort, and know that you are as secure as you could possibly be by the very working of God Himself. And all these ifs all through the book of Hebrews are senses. Knowing that that if means since this is true. They're not conditions. They're proofs that God has done what He said He's going to do. And we can put our faith, our hope, our confidence in Him, knowing that that gift of confidence is what He has given to us. Therefore, therefore we glorify Him with it. And that's the goal. Jesus deserves it all. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Put your confidence in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that... You have never failed. God, we praise You that You will never fail. And that includes me. <laughs> you didn't make a mistake in calling me. And You will not make a mistake as You complete me. Holding fast my confidence to the end that You are who You say You are, that I am who You say I am, and that You will do what You said You will do. We are Your house. We are Your people. We are the body of Christ by Your doing. And our confidence, our boast is in You. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength. But let he who boasts boast in this, you say, God, that he both knows and understands me. And Father, if there be those within the sound of my voice who have not placed their faith, their confidence in the finished work of Jesus for their salvation, Holy Spirit, speak life. 
and bring to fruition that calling that existed before the foundation of the world. And may they repent of their sins, place their faith in Christ, and rest in Him, knowing that you're, going, you're starting a work that you're going to complete and their hope and their trust would be in you and not in themselves or the things of the world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed, but stay and eat with us if you can.